Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Philippians chapter 2. We are going to take a quick break this week from our study in 1 John. um, Because as, as I stated earlier, as you came in, you got a communion cup. And so at the end of our service, we're going to be partaking in the Lord's Supper together. And so really this entire service and, and this message is, is leading up to the point where we can remember Christ's sacrifice through communion. Um, before we dive into uh, the passage, I want to share a story with you. I don't know if you've been spending a lot of time outside. Um, I know that, that we have, uh, my wife and I, and we have four kids. And so we've been spending a lot of time outside over the past number of weekends with the nice weather. Um, and the kids are always coming up with something new as far as a game or activity. Uh, I know there's some kids in the room, and so maybe you, you know what that's like. Like there's fun things to do, especially in the summertime. And, and my five-year-old son, Elijah, and my three-year-old daughter, Nora, this was the game that they played yesterday. All right? So we've got this old, it's broken, doesn't even work. It's a, it's a battery-operated tractor. Okay, I should get a new battery for it, but it's just toast. I mean, it doesn't work at all. But it does work by Elijah power. Um, and so Nora will sit on it, and, and Eli, again, five years old, he will push her all over the yard. And I'm just watching it happen yesterday. I'm like, he has to be so tired. Like, because I've done that like once and I'm ready to pass out, right? Like, it's not easy to push that thing around the yard, but he just for, it seemed like hours just kept doing it. And, and Elijah's not normally that selfless. I don't want to give him too much credit. Um, he's, he's a five-year-old boy. Um, but in that moment, I'm sitting on the back porch and I'm watching Elijah and I'm watching Nora. And Nora was in her glory to sit on that tractor and be pushed around by her brother. And for a short period of time, Elijah was finding so much joy and fulfillment in pushing his sister around the yard. You know, and as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of the passage that we are in today where we're going to learn a lot about the word humility. Humility, where we're called to consider the needs of other people as more important than ourselves. Humility considers others' needs as more important. And that's what we see in Philippians chapter 2. Paul is going to um, challenge the Philippian church here in this passage along two lines. Unity and service. That they would be unified as the body of Christ and that they would seek to serve one another and serve those around them by being humble and considering other people's needs as more important than themselves. And so if you want to follow along with me, I want to just read the first four verses and then we'll take a break and we'll talk about that. And then we're going to finish with verses 5 through 11. But it says this in verses 1 through 4. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So here's where Paul is introducing this idea of unity. He says, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Right? He's calling them to unity. He's calling them to put aside their own desires, their own selfish wants, and to pursue unity, oneness with the body of Christ. He then says in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, right? Selflessness, considering others. He says, But in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And, And so what Paul's doing here in these opening verses is he's setting the stage for what we will then talk about in verses 5 through 11, which is referred to as the Christ hymn or the song of Christ. 
And I love these verses in verses 5 through 11 because it describes for us, it shows us what it means to follow Jesus and who Christ is, what he's like, his character, the work that he accomplished for us. We see that here in this incredible song, this hymn of Christ. If you're a note taker, here's the main point that I want you to remember today. It's this. Jesus is the perfect example, the perfect picture of humility. If you're looking for someone to model your life after, if there's someone that you want to follow in life, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the perfect picture of humility. It says this in verse 5. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul here is leading with a command, and he says, have this mind among yourselves. If you're reading this, you ought to ask, what mind? What's he talking about? Who's he referring to? Well, then he finishes that thought by saying, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so the mind that we're called to have is a mind like Christ. And as it said in verses 3 and 4, we're called to serve others around us, to live our lives with humility, to consider the needs of others as more important than ourselves. And when we do that, we are following in Jesus' example. We are living by this picture of humility that he has given us to follow. I don't want to breeze right by this because this is so important. Living this kind of life, a selfless life, a humble life, looking to the needs of those around you is impossible by yourself. You can't do it without Christ. You need him in your life. I believe that's why Paul writes here, it's yours in Christ Jesus. He's our perfect model. He's our perfect picture. And we're called to wholeheartedly embrace his way and follow his leading in our lives. Jesus is the perfect picture of humility. The next question I want to answer is this. As we look at the next few verses, how does this help us understand Jesus? As we go to God's word, that ought to be a question that we're often asking ourselves. We're asking, God, as I read this text, as I study this passage, how do I better understand Christ? How can I better understand who he is? And again, I believe there's four things here that jump out of the passage that show us who Jesus is and what he's like. The first one is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. I know this is elementary. This is kind of basic knowledge. But as we look at this passage, look at verse 6. It says, who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is in the form of God. And So what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be in the form of God? Well, this word form here, what it actually means is it's the true and exact nature of something or someone. It's the exact imprint or the exact form. And so what this is telling us very basically is that Jesus is God. He always has been. He currently is now. He always will be. Jesus is God fully. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. It says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Or in Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you, know, if you want to know what God is like, it's Christ. It's Jesus. 
Philippians 2 verse 6 goes on to say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or in other words, a thing to be held on to or a thing to be gripped for one's own advantage. I love this because while Jesus is in the form of God, he is divine. He is deity. He doesn't hold on to those privileges. He doesn't hold on to that advantage for his own advantage. What we'll see here soon is he becomes a human being. He steps out of heaven and onto earth so that you and I can have salvation in him. But I don't want us to miss this opening truth that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. The second thing we see in verse 7 is that Jesus became human. Jesus became human. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So the question is, what does this mean that he emptied himself? There's a lot of debate, a lot of conversation around this phrase. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. This does not mean that when Jesus came to earth that he emptied himself of his divinity. He didn't say, I was God in heaven, now I'm coming to earth and I'm no longer fully God. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is that Jesus became fully human. Now, I know this is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but while Jesus was on the earth some 33 years, he was both fully God and fully man. 100% divinity, 100% humanity. He was the God-man, fully God and fully man. I love what one uh, pastor said. He said he was an ordinary Jewish baby bound for the cross. He came and he dwelt among us, John chapter 1 tells us. He was born the son of a carpenter. He, He lived a normal life. The Bible tells us that he had to grow in his understanding, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. Jesus became a human. Now, the question is, how, how did this happen? Well, it says here that, that by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. Notice the contrast here. In verse 6, it talks about the form of God. Jesus is the form of God. Now, in verse 7, it's saying he takes the form of a what? Servant. He does so by being born in the likeness of men. It's humility. Jesus is the perfect picture of humility. Now, real quick, has anyone in here been on a team or maybe in a workplace where there is someone who is truly a team player? Anybody? What I mean by team player is like they're not about their own statistics, they're not about their own success, they're not about their own um, fame, but they, they desperately want the team to win. Anybody been, been a part of something like that? It's so refreshing But it's really rare in this culture, is it not? I remember there was a uh, a teammate when I played basketball at Cedarville. uh, My freshman and sophomore year, he was an upperclassman, and he was one of these guys. He never saw the floor unless we were up by 25 or down by 25. He he just didn't get the playing time. But I will tell you, he was the leader of our team. Leader in the locker room, leader on the bench. He was the one who would encourage you, lift you up. And when I think about humility, He's a guy that comes to mind. 
He was the one that would celebrate with you when you'd make a shot. He was the one that would celebrate the win, even though he was never on the floor. He was a team player. He led with humility. Jesus is the perfect picture of humility. He steps out of heaven, form of God, onto earth, form of a servant. I love what 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says. It says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, all right, again, he's God, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus became a human. Here's the third point. How do we understand Jesus better by this particular passage? Three, Jesus obeyed to death. Jesus obeyed to the point of death, our passage would tell us. Look at verse 8. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, again, form of a servant. Now it says he's in human form, the exact opposite of the form of God. And it says that he humbles himself. How does he do that? By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ came and he lived the life that none of us could live. Right? He was tempted, faced with sin and temptation just like you and I are, but was perfect and never fell short. Yet he went to the cross and he died for our sins. The death that we deserved, the payment that we owed, Jesus took on himself on the cross. He was obedient to the Father's will. God had sent him on a mission to bring salvation to the entire world. And Jesus was obedient to that mission, to that plan, and he followed it to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love what one commentary said as he was just... Uh, thinking about the cross and, and what it means for us as followers of Jesus. He said this, no other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of a person. It was the ultimate expression of Christ's obedience to the Father. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hung on a cross for all to see, humiliated, body broken, blood shed for your sins and for mine. Jesus obeyed to death. I'm thankful that the story doesn't stop there because the last thing we see here in our passage is that Jesus not only obeyed to the point of death, Jesus is the exalted one. Verses 9 through 11. Jesus Christ is the exalted one. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Paul's conclusion. He says that God has highly exalted him. He has lifted him up. He has raised him up. Jesus was humiliated. He was humbled when he went to the cross and died for our sins and was literally buried in a tomb for three days. He was humiliated. But that led to his exaltation because on the third day, we know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God raised Jesus to new life. He was resurrected. 
And then he walked around. He's talking with people. For about 40 days, he's alive and he's having conversations with people. And after 40 days, he ascends back to heaven where he sat down at the right hand of God. And God has now bestowed on him, the passage says, the name that is above every name. His fame, his glory, his power, his authority. Now we're not given the specific name here that Jesus is given, but many believe it's this name, Yahweh. If you go back to the Old Testament, it's God's covenantal name. That God had made a promise with his people that he would send a deliverer, one who would save his people from their sins. And the work of Christ, what he has accomplished on the cross, has once and for all conquered sin and death and now made it available that you and I can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He ascended sat down at the right hand of God, and get this, now he mediates on our behalf. He's our advocate. He's our intercessor. Verse 11 tells us that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one with all authority and power. So here's the question. Why has God the Father given this name to Jesus the Son? Well, the passage in verse 10 tells us that it's so that, here's the reason, so that At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Translation, so that every being might worship Jesus as their Lord. That every knee should bow. This is a a posture. We we automatically think of like getting down on your knees, right? And you're kind of in humble submission. You're, you're, You're bowed before someone. Maybe it's a king or someone in authority. But I think what Jesus is more after here. He's more after the posture of our heart. He wants to know that our hearts are submitted and worshipful, that we are surrendered to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of our lives. So how's your heart today? Is your heart in a posture of worship before our great Savior, Jesus? Because God has given this name of all authority and power so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you confessed Jesus today? Do you know him as your Savior and as your Lord? The Bible is full of promises, and one of the best promises of Scripture is in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. So how's your heart? Have you genuinely, authentically confessed Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? Because here's the ultimate calling. Here's the ultimate purpose for your life. Everybody wants an identity. Everyone wants a purpose. Everyone wants a calling in life. As we look to Scripture, our purpose as followers of Jesus is crystal clear. Verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. That we live our lives, the words we say, the actions we take, are for the glory of God the Father. As we reflect on this passage, as we seek to internalize it in our hearts, I want you to think about this question. How does this passage call us to be more like Jesus? Jesus. 
Again, this is a question we should be asking when we come to God's word. How does this change my heart? How can I more accurately reflect on this text and get more of Jesus into my heart so that my life might look more like him? Three things. One, humility leads to compassion. If you want to have compassion for those around you, it's not going to happen if humility is not in your heart. Humility leads to compassion. We see this in the life of Christ. There's a supreme beauty in the incarnation that Jesus, the Son of God, stepped out of heaven and dwelt amongst sinners so that we might have life. His humility led him to compassion, led him to empathy, forgiveness, grace, love, mercy. And so if we want to be people that are characterized by those qualities, it starts with humility. Secondly, compassion leads to service. Compassion leads to service. As we look at the New Testament, what we are, we are taught over and over again is that sacrifice is the greatest expression of love. We see that in the person and work of Jesus, who was willing to go to the cross and sacrifice his life for you and I. Compassion, a heart that breaks for something, ought to lead to action, to service. And lastly, service brings glory to God. Service brings glory to God. When we live our lives in obedient ways, when we follow the Lord's leading in our life, it will bring glory to our Father in heaven. That's why it says in Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. At Maranatha, we talk a lot about these words. Connect, grow, serve. We want you to believe in Jesus. We want you to connect with others. We want you to grow in your relationship with Jesus, but we don't want it to stop there. We want you to serve him. That God has given you spiritual gifts and abilities and passions in life, experiences in life that can be used to benefit those around you and to bring glory to your Father in heaven. We're called to serve him, and we do it for his glory. Well, here's the last question. By way of application, how does this challenge us to join in Jesus' mission? Here's the first one. Let's start by confessing our pride. And I'll be the first one to go. Because as I preach this passage, I am so painfully reminded of my own pride. My own need for humility. My own need to not think so much about my own selfish desires and the desires and the needs and the wants of those around me. So let's start by humbly confessing our pride. We do that vertically in our relationship with God, asking for his forgiveness because ultimately our pride is an affront against his, about his name and his glory in the world. And then we continue by confessing our pride horizontally to our spouse, our kids, our coworkers, our friends, our teammates, the people that we rub shoulders with every day. Hey, I need your forgiveness. Because when I said that or I did that, that was extremely prideful on my part. Would you forgive me? So the first thing that we're challenged to do is that we start by confessing our pride. And secondly is this, serve your circle for the glory of God. When I mean circle, what I mean by that is it's the people that God has sovereignly placed in your life, the people around you, 
your sphere of influence, the people that God wants you to have an impact on for God's glory. Serve your circle. And when I say serve, what I mean is not just actions, that's part of it, but also our words. We love people by action, with the love of Christ, and we love them through words by sharing the gospel. The death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus, we communicate God's love through action and through word. So serve your circle. Maybe that's at home. It's at work. It's your community. Wherever God has called you to, make it your goal this week that you're going to go into that environment with an attitude of service, desiring to place the needs of others as more important than yourself. Main point this morning, don't want you to forget this. As we think about Christ, we think about who he is and what he's accomplished for us. Jesus is the perfect picture. He's the perfect example of what it means to live a humble life.